0: So.
1: Hello, everybody. This is uh, Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. And this is uh, the podcast. Tell me about your tech job with me, Tom and Bowden, SIU's summer 22, 2022 uh, ITech 350 class, Real World IT Seminar. And today we've got uh, somebody I'm excited to have joining us kind of uh, last minute due to me forgetting to include him on the Outlook invite, which has not been something that hasn't happened before this summer. (laughs) I did that once before. Um, But a friend of mine, um, somebody I've known for quite a while, uh, Nick Rahimi. And um, I first came to know Nick as a student in the IST program 12 years ago. Is that what you said? Yeah, something like that. And um, came to know him as a student, uh, as a a person who would beat me at racquetball with, with no mm-hmm. mercy ever given. Uh, and then as he went through grad school and eventually it was a uh, uh, teaching for us in the program and, and becoming a assistant professor in the program. And he's just done a lot of cool stuff. Very, very nice, cool guy. And I, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. So um, to get started, uh, Nick, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. Where, where are you from? Uh, what do you like to do for fun? And then we'll talk about maybe how you got interested in your start in technology. Sure.
0: All right. So thank you for the introduction. My name is Nick Rahimi. In fact, my real first name is Shahriar. Nick Rahimi, since nobody can pronounce my name, I go by Nick. So uh, I moved to US 13 years ago from Iran Karbondal was the first city that I arrived in. I have, I got my first bachelor degree in Iran. The degree was in software engineering, computer software engineering. Then, well, I got into the SIU, got my second degree in information technology. Then, well, I go on, got my master's and PhD in computer science, teaching in the SIU as a lecturer. And, um assistant for, assistant professor for a few years, then last year, summer of 2021, I moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I'm not right now, I'm an assistant professor at USM University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. Now, regarding the things that I do, well, I miss Carbon a lot. Things that I used to do in though is not really easy to do around, especially the wineries over there. And uh, obviously, the racquetball, driving <laughs> my motor. Yeah, the cruiser here. Unfortunately, I can because I thought that because the weather here is, well, eight or nine months of the year is above 75, I can drive my motorcycle more. But Unfortunately, I don't know the design here is a little bit different the design of the roads and the streets. So I cannot commute and still don't know many people to know to go cruising around with them do the joyriding. So yeah, I miss Carl Vondel, SIU, all of you guys, and really happy that I got this invite and have a chance to talk to you guys today.
1: Cool. So did you grow up with technology or when did you first kind of start getting interested in computing and and in technology? Well, uh, and and I know keeping in mind that you grew up in Iran, so you know right. where, where you grew up is different from where everybody else is familiar with.
0: Yes, but I was a fortunate kid, so not much different. Okay, I can say. However, it was different for many Iranian, but not for me. But well, for me. It's- you know, my older brother, Shahram mm-hmm. Rahimi, he is the one that always has been into the, you know, the technology, and he started sooner than me. And to be honest, he had, um, when he was a um, student in computer science in Iran in 89, and I was in not even in the middle of school, so that was the first computer that I ever saw. That was um 80 or 86, if you remember, computer mm-hmm. before Pentium era. Mm-hmm. So, um, now he you know set up obviously password and keys, they had this you know physical key at that time. If you remember, they liked the computer,
1: so you couldn't and hit the power button.
0: Yeah, it was a really expensive thing. I remember my dad, my dad was a pilot, commercial pilot, so he flew to Seoul, South Korea to buy a computer from Wow. Me. Yeah, and he bought a desktop. It was big, big box. Desktop. Yeah. And he brought it in, never seen it around. So, it was an expensive thing. So, whenever that my brother, you know, go out at that time try to sneak in somehow, try to guess his password, find the key and get to his computer and play, you know, a couple of these games that he had. And well, so his pictures, <laughs> things he had at that time. So in fact, the first, I mean, that was the reason that I got into the technology and I got interested in cybersecurity because that was the first time that I tried to break a password through the social engineering. Mm-hmm. and. I, Knew my brother's girlfriend, guessed uh, you know, knew that somehow he's gonna use the you know, girlfriend's name and
1: his favorite
0: call, <laughs> combine everything together and you know, spend hours and hours to somehow find the password. So that was the first time that I you know, got into And then he started to teach me how to program and I got interested because well, he's been he kind of has been always my role model. Sure. And that was the reason I got into got interested in got into the computer and technology.
1: Okay. So you you followed him into undergrad doing uh, computer software engineering. And and if I remember right, you did some work over in Iran in uh, technology? Yes.
0: Yes. So when I was a student, I started to, my brother at that time, he was in Iran too. And he had a company, software programming company. And I started to work for him but then he moved out and migrated to us in 95 96 then when i graduated i started my own company so we just you know writing software for different companies like accounting software things like that and you know installing networks selling computer everything that be cool at that time i was okay but though, you know Iran is not really, um, because all the situation that is back there and um, all the trouble and everything that is there, you really, you know, you cannot deal with the government and all the, you know, problems and issues there. So that was the then reason that I thought that, well, maybe it's time for me to try to move out and was fortunate to be able to you know pursue the american dream
1: so so you landed up here in carbondale taking taking your time getting through a couple of different degrees and was when you first got here was was becoming a professor was that a goal or were you not sure
0: now, when I got here, I already was a programmer and I had a few years of experience. But well, my degree was from Iran, and nobody knows where you know where I graduated. in. so, in order to get a job, actually, I recommended to you know go to university, get another degree, the same area. And since you already have a bachelor, you can you know finish your second bachelor. Few semester takes shorter for me, so having another degree, then uh, basically I would be able to go to you know get a job in the technology as a programmer. But well, when I got, I was freaked out when I wanted to you know start a school because obviously you know is moving from Iran to here, everything has changed now. You want to learn a new language now well i had really really i mean there are some circumstances some issues back there then you know that's another topic that you know that can open it up later but uh, um, then when i joined the information technology department in fact because of you guys seriously i really owe it to you guys to you bill nancy jim um, um andre Andre, yes, definitely. Andre was the one that I was working with, so I got really, really, really comfortable just studying and found myself, and then thought that hey, maybe this is my calling to just go get a master's degree, enjoy you know studying and do research. Then step by step, when I got my master's, then I wanted to continue researching, got my PhD. And, you know, when I was a PhD student, I got hired again by you guys, the lecturer, back in 2017, 13? Wow. Yes. So, yes, I enjoy to, you know, basically to hang out and work with students. And, well, there we go. And now I'm here and really love it.
1: Awesome. And, and yeah, I, I mean, it was really cool teaching alongside you because um, you, you taught, you know, c- cybersecurity classes, you taught software classes. Um, so pretty, pretty capable in, in that respect, you could, you know, kind of the Swiss army knife teacher, which is cool. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you completed your degrees um, PhD. So Dr. Dr. Nick and I, um, one thing that I think that a lot of IT students, undergrad students specifically, and probably undergrad computer science students, don't understand is this idea of research. Um, and you know we we know that there are research institutions and teaching institutions. and if you go to a research institution like SIU or like uh, USM, um, there's an expectation of research. But what does that mean? Uh, what is research? You know, I got hired here at SIU and, and the one thing I knew was they're gonna wanna know what you're gonna do in terms of research. And I was like, to be honest, I got the job before I really understood what university level academic research was. Um, what is what is research to you? What is research and what is it that you, you know that, that, that makes something that you're doing research rather than just a project?
0: Well, basically means to improve. Pursue whatever you like and improve it. So, as far as the research, so when I got involved first time that you know started the research project was again back into the that time I sat the apartment and I was working with Andre and we were working this cool project that we were supposed to actually design a machine learning neural network machine to basically uh predict that among these patients that are coming to the dental hygienist and dental hygienists see them and they fill out these applications before the dental hygienists see them so as soon as they complete their you know the forms the normal forms so we wanted to be able to guess who is the smoker here using machine learning and what is the chance to help that person to quit smoking? So we could we, we, we wanted to be able to guess that okay, if this person is a smoker, you know, asking that person if he is or she is capable of quitting, if he's really want to do it. And then if they want to quit, how we can pursue and provide packages and things that we were working with the health department inside you so that was the first step that I got involved and I love this project. And uh, from there, I just you know try to come up with questions and try to find an answer for my questions and that was the research I mean, basically it's not a really complicated thing you just need to add an extra step an extra thing to something that already done and to make it improve
1: that's that's the way I've never heard it described but it's it's you know it makes a lot of sense um so you know some people you know oftentimes uh when I talk to people who I meet the first time and they I tell them what I do um you know they they don't they they ask questions about the the job and and when we are, um you know like assistant professors one of our expectations at a research institution is to create research and uh getting that research published and and by getting that research published it leads to um potentials to submit for grants from you know organizations like the government and and those grants then help fund your ability to continue the research and it's like an investment in you as a researcher in being able to create something new that will help solve a problem exactly. uh, that will improve something. And so your example about the, the dental hygiene um, is cool because one, it's a an example of multidisciplinary research combined together. You've got computing and you've got dental hygiene, and then probably a third component that's looking at the, you know, maybe population health or something like that and the outcomes. Right. Um but it also is an example of how computing technologies and, and machine learning, artificial intelligence, neural networks can be applied to so many problems that are not technical problems in nature. Um, and I would imagine when when you pull down, you know, open the hood of some of these phone apps that we've got to do different things, Like like one thing I'm thinking is I've got this little app here. And what's it called? I think it's called Seek. Seek. Yes. So Seek is a little app, take a picture of a plant, sends it up to the cloud, tells you what kind of plant it is. And, and those types of things are being run by, you know, some sort of computer uh, background uh, cloud clustering server running algorithms that have been designed by people like researchers that you know like like you um or people at com- private companies public companies that are doing research as well so so the idea of, of generating you know developing something new getting it published working with students and in, in a lot of cases especially grad students um, to to get them involved in research and bring them along and help them establish their research agendas is is part of our job um which is interesting, but also very challenging. Um, And you've done a fantastic uh, job doing that. Um, You've been, you know, pretty, pretty accomplished, pretty prolific in in what you've done and got on your CV, which is, which is, you know, something, something, uh, you know, associated with our jobs and what the the CV, the academic CV, we won't even get into that. But, um, you know, one thing with academic research is, is there's often a kind of a, a pathway you know you get started as a junior faculty member and you find that niche or that you that area that you're interested in and then that just continues and you become an expert over the years solving problems related to that or problems using that that niche that you're you know that you um, that you've kind of uh, adopted as your own and and you've been able to do that and and maybe we could talk now about some of the stuff you've done with uh, blockchain. Now, I, there was a student of mine in this class. He's not been to one of these live, but his name, I think, is Michael. He said, "Find somebody who can talk about blockchain." So I said, oh. "I know my friend Nick. He does blockchain stuff." And so here you are. So you want to tell us about some of your current research and some of the stuff you've done sure. in working with blockchain?
0: Yes. So, so one of the things. So we know different type of applications of blockchain, right? All of us are familiar with um, cryptocurrencies and we know the blockchain because of the cryptocurrencies. There are other things: smart contract, supply chain, voting system, and so on and so on. Basically, we can use blockchain everywhere. But what I'm personally passionate about, and this the reason is because of the, you know, I mean, the place that I'm from, is an in Internet censorship Internet censorship is a big deal in the world, not here, but is is basically I can strongly say that one third of the population of the world is dealing with that in their daily life so. In many countries around the world like Middle East China, many others some normal websites like YouTube like Google social net, networking, Facebook, Instagram, people cannot basically get access to those websites. They cannot get access to the normal information, data, news, things like that. They are getting you know basically these authority authoritarian countries um, feeding their people with propaganda, whatever they want it can be in religious religion related, news related, or anything basically they want so i wanted you know from my uh, the time that i was a math, phd student i always wanted to basically somehow help somehow find an application a way for the people to be able to get access to the internet freely and internet be available for them uh, and all the websites and the news and everything everywhere
1: and so and one thing i think we should say is you know, you're not just talking about these people that that live under these regimes with with authoritative Internet censorship. It's not just a matter of not being able to get to YouTube to watch funny cat videos or, or Facebook. You know, exactly. there's important stuff, right? You need to know what's yeah. going on in the world. And so, you know, there's there's all the silliness associated with the Internet that we see all the time. But there's important stuff too, and access to information is crucial.
0: Yes. So. Uh... Then, then I started with basically. So, what is the blockchain? Blockchain is nothing than an um, append only ledger that is immutable. Okay, no one can basically, you're supposed to be able to mess around, change it, alter it, and is working in a decentralized network. It means there is no authority there, there is no one that can control basically like the way that we're all familiar with the server-client system. Basically, there is a bunch of uh, normal peers' nodes, things like my computer, your cell phone, tablet, things around that. that Uh, Cloud
1: cloud cluster.
0: Yes, exactly. That people are using to connect, and they are basically sharing the resources that they have uh, among each other that's just a decentralized system. Now, the advantage of the decentralized system is that, well, first of all, there's no single point of failure because there's no server there. Then um, availability of resources, scalability, tons of other stuff. And then now, when we add some sort of cryptography, including the asymmetric cryptography and hash to this decentralized system, basically we convert it to a blockchain blockchain is not a blockchain been around for a longer than um actually than uh bitcoin Uh, it's introduced i believe in early 2000 but well it got all the you know fame and everything because of the bitcoin Mm -hmm. so now what i'm doing in one of my research i'm trying to so there are tons of techniques that you know, these countries are using to uh, basically block the internet, things like um, IP blocking, domain blocking, content filtering, ban even, one of the things that they do, you know, in case when they want, do not want that people communicate with each other, you know, in case if there is a protest or, you know, things like that in their country, they're basically shut down the internet. So the reason is, They do not want, first of all, for people to communicate with each other so they can arrange and organize a meeting or protest or things like that. Second, they do not want that the news, pictures, videos from the cracking down this protest coming out of the country. And, you know, they just want to isolate, do the crackdown and just basically uh, finish this protest, uh, protest. So they shut down the internet or uh, one of the other technique that they do is, which is really common these days is deep packet inspection. So um, basically they're using machine learning AI techniques to go through the uh, packet and they can filter, you know, different type of protocols, different type of packets, based on, you know, whatever they want to do. So now regarding the methods that we can now, what are the techniques that people basically around the world are using to pass this uh, internet censorship? The f- most famous one that is used by using the VPN, virtual private network.
1: Yeah, VPN. Okay,
0: very common. People over there are using VPN to get access to the free internet, but that has their, its own, you know, pros and cons. First of all, if they want to have use a VPN that is reliable, is expensive. They have to pay for it. It's not free. And again, there are some other technique that you know these countries can use, such as um, you know Tor. Yeah, the, no, to block the VPN even to uh, you know to, to block the VPN, they can get you know people can get their computers can get infected by using the you know the uh, free VPN and so on and so forth. The fourth one is, you know, the other one is Tor or using the peer-to-peer network. But again, the issue is the packet inspection just block all of them at the gateway before it can be
1: So the sensors can maybe not tell exactly what you're doing because you're wrapping your traffic in encryption of, of some sort, but they can tell that you're wrapping your, your, yeah. your traffic with encryption and they're not cool with that. And so they'll just blanket say, if it looks like OpenVPN, if it looks like Tor, Deny.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, so what I try to do, I try to basically create a peer to peer network that is location location-aware. So what I mean by this location aware is that so this peer to peer network is going to be available for some specific location geocode in, you know, in, can be in any area of the world so people can find each other based on their mutual interests. Which, in that case, is the you know the location okay. that they live, the things that they care. So, um, for that, I design a, a decentralized network that, for the first one, it has the capability of you know to be able to you know provide the system that I wanted to support. So, it's a hierarchical, interest-based, and is location-aware. Now, the thing that is important there is you want to keep the people anonymous. You do not want to reveal their identity. So we use some sort of logical addressing. However, it's not 100% obviously, as soon as you use any sort of addressing, it's not 100% anonymous, but it's, as we say, pseudo anonymity, some sort of anonymity, make it a little bit harder for, you know, for um, these countries if they want to,
1: and we're talking, we're talking IP addresses, right? Yes. Okay. But other
0: than that, it's an overlay network, right? The peer-to-peer so it's an overlay network it works over uh, IP address. So we have some sort of logical addressing to uh, basically to form these networks based on their mutual interest. Now, <clears throat> And the novelty of this system comes just from this logical address. And peer-to-peer networks are different. We have two two type of peer-to-peer network. Number one is down structure, the one that Bitcoin uses. There's no topology. Peers are connecting together. Search is not guaranteed. There it has its own cons and pros. And we have a uh, structured-based peer-to-peer decentralized system, which works on uh, most of them. or I can say all of them by using a distributed hash table. So it basically means that it can now, we can search. If you look for one specific resource, you can search for it. You can find if somebody uh, um, has this type of resource or not. Now, for the system that I'm developing, actually a PhD student of mine is currently working on that. We are using a new method of actually addressing and that method is uh basically we're calling it LDE because it's we use the um addressing method or, or or I should say that um number theory method that being used in cryptography a lot, linear phantom equation, but I you know have another use for it, I use it for the you know to do the addressing and create another structure basically based peer-to-peer network. Now, this uh, structure-based peer-to-peer, you know, the main problem in peer-to-peer network basically is the problem of churn. Peer-to-peer network is not reliable like server client, right, because server is always there, you know, as long as the server, you know, does not have any issues working 24 seven or wide services, but, in peer-to-peer network, decentralized network, we reliable, we rely on you know nodes and peers, you know, just normal people like me. Like you want to get some sort of resource, download something from my computer, and then suddenly feel hey, I'm hungry, I close my computer and I'm gone. So it's not really reliable. This is we call the problem of churn frequently joining and leaving the system. Mm-hmm. And when this nodes are leaving the system basically that's the reason that peer-to-peer network decentralized not getting really you know um, um basically doesn't they don't still client service more popular mm-hmm. uh, compared to peer to peer because the reliable issue. so now when they leave then the addressing system for most of the systems this they'll Structure system that are working based on um, distributed hash tables is getting you know really really hard. They're leaving and they want to join. Now who's the one that has the resources? Okay, let's update the routing table, let's update the mapping between the resource and, and the one that possesses this. So it's not easy. Now with this system, it's getting much easier for the nodes to join and leave. Now <clears throat> Now, how are we changing it to the, basically being a location ever without using GPS. So we do not use GPS. And uh, again, because of the anonymity, we want to keep the privacy of the people, and whoever that is using it. For that, basically we are using the uh, service that Google is providing, and that service is, um, is the Google Open Location Code or OLC. Now, what this is, Google's open location code is basically dividing the word into the grids of 68 by 68. It's kind of 68 miles by 68 miles. So it's kind of like a the system is kind of like a zip code. Okay. So zip code of carbon is 62901. And Zip code of, you know, for the open location code or OLC, there is a zip code, four digit, for any grid in the world by the size of 68. Uh, That's 68. So I'm a user. I want to join this network in that certain country. I download this application, I already, this is the web based application I go online a drop down menu is going to open up for me and say hey which area you want to join. And I say hey let's I want to join southern Illinois. Carbondale." Okay, then I basically I select that then as soon as I select i'm a member of that network and the network is you know, the size of the network is 68 by 68 But based on the traffic can be, you know, this is again, the feature of the OLC or open location code can, can make it smaller can break it into the, that 64 by six or break it into the four um, square. Now the code is getting longer, by two more digits, but, <clears throat> but that way people can be simply, you know, find that specific location and join. And as soon as they join, now, this logical addressing system is starting to assign a you know, logical code, logical address to them, which basically they use to communicate and um, uh, they use to do the query, do the lookup, and communicate with each other. Now, that's, that's a, basically another term, I, get, I don't want to get you guys bored. But it goes to them, yeah, the math and how it works. But the novelty of this system is in this logical addressing system because nobody ever, and to the best of my knowledge, nobody have ever done that using it this way. So as as soon as you look at the logical address, you know that where the location is, how, how many hops they're away from the other one, you know, all the nodes in one group are connected to each other because they're forming a complete graph and so on and so forth. That's the, Advantage of the you know the logical addressing system.
1: So okay, so you've got let's say um, you 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 want to communicate within Carbondale, um, but you then decide that your your interest in who you communicate with is more on the SIU campus. So by extending the the Google location code, uh, you can get even you know further defined location grid. And find the people who are on SIU campus rather than on in Carbondale as a whole, because you may not want somebody all the way over it, you know, close well, to Murfreesboro.
0: Yeah, it depends to the, you know, the number of the users that are in that area. Okay. okay. If there are enough users looking past a certain threshold then we can, you know, if there are like five, 10 people there that are using this system, then all of them, suddenly are gonna to connect to each other. Are, you know. But if it's getting big and, you know, the population, the traffic is getting, you know, higher, then we can divide to the smaller um, areas. And yes, then they can, you know, join to the-, either the Okay. yes and so on and so on.
1: So then with this, this network of, Uh, of of peers that are created by the the Google location code, this allows them to communicate among each other securely and anonymously.
0: Yes. So now where the blockchain comes into the picture? So far, we just talked about the peer-to-peer, the decentralized system. We have not talked about blockchain. So as we said, we want to provide a system that is not, you know, that nobody can alter it. Nobody can delete any information about that or change it or modify it. I mean, the, the main characteristic of blockchain. So let's say I'm a person, I want to post, hey, this news is come out and the huge news, right? It's a blogging thing can be you known through the blog on forums, I can post this, assign it with my private key. But each of this basically groups um, or clusters, or greed, but things that we can name it. They have a group head. Now, the job of this group head is because the consensus that they're using here is the proof of authority and not uh, like, you know, in um, Bitcoin is the proof of work, right? Ethereum is the proof of stack. But here we're using authority and the authority, the job of the authority doesn't, you know, doesn't, I mean, the only thing that it does is can approve that okay one of my own members posts this but more than that cannot delete or change or modify or anything so it's limited the power is limited
1: like a, like an administrator for the group or a moderator yeah. a moderator kind of like that yes so
0: but moderated still you know can you know block it can remove it can delete it but for this one no anyone that posts something as long as it's a member of the group, Goes through it, sign it with a private key, and then group head also is going to, you know, form a block, sign it with a block, uh, private key, and then you know, to form a block, then we have to have a nonce, timestamp, hash value, and you know, all the goods about mm-hmm. the uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: blockchain, and then it's going to broadcast through the network by one hop. Now, again, talking about one hop because we're talking about the clusters and all these peers logically not physically logically mm-hmm. they are connected by one hop to each other and because of the uh, addressing system that we giving to so by one hop everyone you know having this new um information that we posted having this new ledger can be anything but the system also have you know for each of these clusters Let's say one cluster for southern Illinois, one cluster for Southeast Misery, right? We have one chain for that, and one, ex- one separate chain for the Southeast Misery. So it actually has uh basically multi-chain structure and not just one chain. And you know, there are different type of or multi-chain, which is equal to the number of the clusters that we have and <clears throat> And uh, basically, at the end, there's just one node P zero that you know add all these um, chains together and have the you know the, the the real blockchain. But as I said, the power is limited. Yes, we're using the proof of authority here for the consensus, but this single entity doesn't have excessive power uh, because it cannot delete or change anything. And uh, um, so the information, the flow of information and the information that being posted there is going to be there
1: and nobody can change it. Gotcha. So, okay, so this, this, is, this is pretty interesting and there's a lot there, um, but maybe to, to kind of sum up, you have created a a way or working to create a way for people within a geographic region to joining up with others that are peer-to-peer across this this distributed network and then allow them to to contribute content to the blockchain and by contributing to content to the blockchain that can be like hey we're going to meet here to protest, you know and mm-hmm. and and then because it's because the blockchain is you know is is immutable um, and and is signed by both the anonymous user who creates the, the, the content as well as that group head, it provides validity that that hasn't been altered. And so you' you're allowing for people to be anonymous uh, within a, a location, And to create content to distribute without the ability for some sort of higher up to modify, you know, for nefarious purposes or to delete for nefarious purposes and and something like this. I mean, immediately, you know, I start thinking of like the was it 2010 Arab Spring. Um, and 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 the ability you know people were using like twitter and things like that to 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 set up where they would meet to to protest so so this is you know another way of of organizing people and i guess it doesn't have to be for you know political dissent it can be for anything but for anything. Yes. but if we're talking anti censorship then you gave us a solution for people to be able to talk and communicate among each other within a geographically you know bound um, scenario without so basically,
0: uh, one other advantage is it doesn't get to the region's firewall, right? Because at the firewall on the internet they can still go through everything and block it, right? But since right. we keep this small cluster, small geos I mean uh smaller size, it doesn't reach to that and can be among their, each other and you know they cannot find out that who's posting what and who that person is.
1: So it's almost like a a, a neighborhood bulletin board almost with no way for anybody to come and pull off your your post-it note. Right. And also with like a notary signing off on your post-it note on the bulletin board. Absolutely. Yes. So is there in this case, is there anything that prevents the, the bad actors from joining and participating or you just are relying on the fact that you've provided enough anonymity that even if a bad guy hops in there and joins this group, they're not gonna know who it is that, that posted that note on the bulletin board.
0: So the main issue that we have, you're dealing all the blockchain problem, peer-to-peer network is the civil attack. Now, what civil attack is one user claiming multiple identities, getting multiple pretending that it's multiple person and, and getting the you know, multiple uh, logical address and can exhaust the resource and everything. Okay, that's the main issue that we have in all the peer-to-peer networks, and we have also race attack and so on and so forth, which I'm going to talk about. But since here we are assigning a logical address to each of these nodes, basically it would be very hard. To you know, pretend and get another address, you know, and try to you know exhaust this resource. So we somehow prevent one of the main issue that is available is already in there in the peer to peer network. There is also race attack, which is again the big deal in the cryptocurrency. Somebody selling a coin to multiple uh, person. Now again, by this logical address and the way that we give this sign this logical address. They basically um we can somehow prevent it but if one simple node wants to connect and do um the other things that we're actually having other than you know it's because this is going to be web- web-based or um basically um phone-based so some normal things that we all are using you know, capture reputation-based techniques things like that that we mm-hmm. use in the web. Basically, prevent you know bad actor to be able to join.
1: Okay, so you, I mean, you've created a a foundation or framework that then can be extended by things like CAPTCHA or whatever it is that we come up with next. That yeah, neat. And so, how big have you tested this? Or well, still in the process.
0: Still in the process. This is a this is going to be a work of one of my PhD students is actually working on that we already developed the peer to peer network and we tested in just one because of the resources that they have in some area with just few limited number of the people there and it was working fine but obviously the scale and you know peer to peer network is testing it is really because we have to do the simulation and simulation is always different from the real world right embedded. but i'm trying to Again, because of the old collaborators and you know, people that I'm working with and have from around the world trying to uh, implement it and test it, you know, in this type of region and test it in in real scenario. But right now, right now, we tested in small scale and still has a lot of things to complete.
1: Okay. So a work in progress. So maybe in two yep. years, we'll have you back and with your PhD student and hear what else you've done since.
0: Hopefully. Yes.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Can, can I now ask you the five uh, quick fire questions that uh, you're not aware of?
0: Okay. okay. Cool.
1: What is your favorite type of food? Where do you like to eat? Maybe a favorite restaurant or cuisine? Oh, man. All right. So favorite type of food is a Persian food.
0: I don't know if you tried it or not because you had many Persian students. Yeah. but We call it Sabzi, but it's not the type of the thing that international like it. I don't know why. I don't understand that. Okay. And there are not many restaurants that can cook that. So my wife is the best cook for that. But kebab, other than that, is the one that I like. There's no in Carbondale, but I like them. Um there's a kebab, really really good kebab restaurant in Chicago by the name of Reza. I don't know if you tried it or not. R-E-Z-A, but I really recommend whenever that you go there and go and try it. What about you know,
1: St. Uh, Louis? Anything in St. Louis? Uh
0: well yes, but I don't remember the name of the
1: restaurant. Well, if you think about it, I might be going to St. Louis <laughs> next week. Yeah. So send me a text. Yeah. All right. So so food from home, Persian food cooked by your wife. That's the that's the yeah. that's tops. I I can I can understand that. Uh, let's see. Do you have any podcast books, movies, TV shows, anything you've been interested in recently? Doesn't have to be technology related, anything cool that you found that you want to recommend?
0: Oh uh, all right. These few days, I mean last few days that I got hit by Kobe, mm-hmm. I started to watch again the
1: breaking bath. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're you're watching it all over again.
0: Yeah, it's all over again because I wanted to watch the Better Call Saul, which I have not started in the new season yet, so I'm excited about that.
1: Okay, so I have I have had Better Call Saul on my need to watch list for about a year, and I have not made it there yet. So <clears throat> I might have to do it. Everybody says it's awesome. It is. Okay, uh, are there is there any type of technology either at home or or at work that you kind of are interested, have your eye on, would like to play around with, or have started to play around with something new and cool? Uh, new
0: and cool.
1: Anything you're in, anything that you're interested in recently? Maybe not so much work associated.
0: Well, I got this as my birthday gift a few days back. There's um, um, tablet, okay. Surface. Well, Surface I'm tablet? Yeah. So, well, maybe this is something that, you know, other than that, Now, something that I can think of right now. Okay. Yeah, probably the coolest thing is the camera that I have in my lap right now. I can check my students and if they're there or not.
1: Ah, so, okay. Well, the department has
0: it. My defense, I'm not the one that try to, you know, watch everyone see what well uh, department has cameras in the labs. So
1: okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, let's see. What is my fourth question? I have a fourth question. Oh, where do you see your career in five to ten years? What do you what do you expect to happen? What do you think you'll be doing five to ten years from now? Uh, well, the goal is to get the tenure. Right. One. Don't think yeah. that'll be a problem for you.
0: Well, hopefully, yep. I don't know. And uh, I'll just try to, I mean, the first goal is to get the uh, NSF courier. That's even comes before the tenure, and somehow they are related so I'm working me and my wife has a competition, we have competition together. She's really well she's way ahead of me in terms of getting grants and research and everything, but as far as the career, NSF career, I'm doing my best and trying to somehow (laughs) somehow, uh, be able to you know get that. So that's something that I'm really working really hard. because the deadline coming in a week,
1: and that's a big, big grant, correct?
0: The huge one for someone in my, you know, as a researcher in tech, yes. And I have two shots to do it uh, when when we are the system professor. So this is my second shot. So I have one more, but hopefully this is actually. Uh, I really hope that this year maybe somehow I'll be able to, you know,
1: award. a very very prestigious, uh, you know, um, uh, award that you'd be given that really that really shows that the NSF has confidence in your ability to continue your track yeah. record of research. So, so good luck to you. I I'm thank you. excited for that. And then the last question: If you wanted to retire, if you could retire today and do anything you want, money is no object. What would you do?
0: man i go to just sport events i retire and go to you and watch all the soccer matches live (laughs) yes while having my beer in my hand and enjoying it yes traveling watching soccer that's the goal
1: okay that sounds like a good goal yeah awesome (laughs) nick thank you very much for your time today really awesome. really interesting stuff we appreciate it uh we had kyler and monica join a little late but uh, uh, this will get shared out today and i'll send you the information about the podcast because i'd love to have you on there with this okay All awesome
0: right. thank you for the opportunity to